I have a question for you this morning. Why did Jesus tell Nicodemus that unless he was born again or from above, he could not see the kingdom of God? During our next two presentations, I'm going to attempt to answer, by God's grace, that question by looking at modern science and also this old book we call the Bible. Before we begin today's study, or part one, I want you to pray with me right now. Father, please, please. Do that for us that we're incapable of doing for ourselves. Illuminate our minds. In Jesus' name, amen. I'd like to say right at the beginning of today's presentation that I'm not an expert on the human brain. I've used one for most of my life. But I still don't comprehend or understand how it works nor do I understand the various parts and all of its interconnectivity to the human body. However, I've discovered that there are some individuals who have spent much of their lives studying this incredible little three-pound mass of gray and white matter, they call it. In fact, there's one thing that they all agree on, those who have studied the brain, and that is that the human brain is a masterpiece of construction. The brain is so incredible and complex that one could spend a lifetime focusing on just one area and its relationship to the whole, and yet still never fully understand everything that there is to know about it. And that's exactly what one neuroscientist has done. His name is James Ledoux. Some of you may have read some of his works or have heard of him. He's focused a great deal of his life on a special part of the brain known as the amygdala. Dr. Ledoux probably knows more about the amygdala than any other person alive from what I understand, and he's yet quick to make an admission. He said he cannot control that little part of his brain. Let me explain what I understand about the amygdala. It consists of two almond-shaped structures represented by these two little eggs that I have in this little clear glass bowl representing our brain, okay? These two little round masses of gray matter located deep within the temporal lobes of the brain are responsible for something, believe it or not. They're about half the size of these eggs, as far as length goes, they're about an inch long. And according to Dr. Ledoux, the amygdala has a lot to do with our emotions, especially anger and fear. Those are the emotions he spent most of his life studying in reference to the human brain. In my personal reading about the amygdala, I've come to conclude that these two little almond-shaped Structures are like a control center, if you please, in our brain. As an example, 
When I was in college, I remember coming out of one of my science classes and I nearly stepped on a rattlesnake. A number of them had gotten out of the lab and were slithering down the hallway, believe it or not, when the bell rang and the door opened and I was one of the first fellows out. And I remember seeing the snake just as someone yelled, Snakes! I don't know what that would do to you, but I know what it did to me. Even though I didn't know it at the time, my visual thalamus in the brain picked up the signal from what was coming through my eyes and transferred the image of the snake back to my visual cortex, which in turn shot a message to my amygdala deep inside that I was about to step on a snake. That information was processed throughout my little brain at a top speed of 268 miles an hour, making my reaction immediate. My amygdala instantly secreted hormones throughout my body, which caused my heart to begin beating faster, my muscles to become energized, causing me to go airborne just enough to avoid stepping on one of those little rattlers. This physical reaction of fight or flight was caused by my amygdala. Because of this little control center and its reaction to the message of my visual cortex, I was not only able to experience a moment of flight, but an extended period of fright. In other words, my heart continued to race for some time, even after I was out of striking distance of the snakes. And it became evident that I had no control over my emotion of fear. In fact, if you had your foot caught in a railroad track and you heard the sound of a train whistle blowing, you would have an emotional reaction and you would have an experience of fear. In fact, it would be impossible not to because that's the way the brain works. But what about our other emotions, which don't seem to be so extreme, such as our daily cares? You know, like frustrations we experience? The stress on the job or anxiety over our children or worry about our future? Can we control these emotions? And what about our emotions which are not so socially acceptable, such as eating disorders, drug and alcohol abuse, uncontrolled anger, hatred, bitterness, envy, jealousy, or sexual perversions? Can we control these emotions? Let me try and answer these questions by sharing some more information I've discovered about our little brain. Today we know that the thinking part, that's this part up here, the thinking part of our brain where our choices and decisions are made is called the prefrontal cortex, that frontal lobe. That's where we think. According to many scientists, for those who study the brain in particular, it is believed that our minds have two basic parts. It has an old brain, which is our emotional brain, and it has a new brain, which is our rational brain. In short, the amygdala is part of our old emotional brain. And our frontal lobe is the new brain or our rational brain. Are you with me so far? 
One of the reasons this is thought to be true is because there seems to be no major connectivity going from the frontal lobe of our brain to the amygdala, while there is a major superhighway, if you please, going from our amygdala to the prefrontal cortex. In other words, when the emotional part of our brain sends a major feeling or a rush, if you please, to the rational part of our brain, our reasoning is overpowered by the emotion that is created and we have no way to get a strong enough message back to our amygdala to tell it to calm down and behave itself. And thus the conclusion the frontal part of the brain is still developing. While the amygdala has obviously been around since our primitive brain was first developed. Now this is why modern science would have us believe it was our primitive brain which enabled our pre-human ancestors or the so-called hominid forms of life to survive through the fight or flight syndrome. But now that the new part of our brain seems to be evolving, according to science, they believe that it may one day be able to control the amygdala. Wouldn't that be nice? To have our thoughts actually control our feelings instead of our feelings overpowering our thoughts. But until then, scientists sort of throw up their little hands and say we have to accept the fact that even though our new brain can do fantastic things cognitively, it is still not capable of having complete control over our emotions. When you look at society, as I do, I'm sure you would have to agree, as I do with science today, that everywhere we look, our whole world seems to be filled with the unfortunate consequences of uncontrolled emotional behavior. Would you not agree with that? That's why modern man today, may I suggest, beloved, is searching for effective ways to modify or diminish our unacceptable emotions. As an example... When people demonstrate a lack of control over their anger, oftentimes a judge will insist that that individual experience what we call anger therapy. Are you with me? If that fails, we can then send them to try another type of therapy called cognitive emotion regulation. And if that doesn't work, we turn to cognitive behavioral therapy, or CBT, which simply means if you can learn to change the way you think, then you can change the way you feel down inside. Today, we're trying new therapies such as prolonged exposure therapy for those who have been through major trauma or are diagnosed with post-traumatic stress disorder, which, follow me, which often comes as a result of having an emotion or picture burned into the mind. In cases of severe depression, today we're resorting to a more modern use 
of an old technique we used to call shock treatments. Today we call it electroconvulsive therapy, or ECT. And of course there are dozens of drugs that are being used and more on their way, each one seeking to suppress our emotions or bring them under some semblance of order and control. When I think about our so-called modern science and its search for effective ways to modify or diminish our unacceptable emotions and behaviors, I can't help but think about the Apostle Paul and what he wrote about himself in Romans chapter 7, verse 15. Listen to what he says about the battle in the brain. I'm reading from the Revised Standard Version, and it says this, I do not, Paul speaking, I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Does that sound familiar to anybody besides this old preacher man? Thank you. There were two of you that agreed with me. I can relate, beloved, to what Paul is saying here. Because most of my life I've experienced that very thing. Now listen to Paul's frustration as he sort of cries out in verses 21 through 24 concerning this battle in his brain. And let me paraphrase this, if I may, this morning, in light of how modern science would probably relate to this. This is what I hear Paul saying. I find, he says, it's a law that evil emotions and feelings are present within me, even though I choose to do good in my thoughts and my actions. For I delight in the law of God within my heart or within my thoughts, but I see another law in my emotions and feelings, which wars against my will or my choice to do good. This law within my emotions holds me captive to its law of sin, which is within me. O wretched, he cries out, O wretched and miserable man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of deadly emotions and feelings which I am powerless to control? Now notice his answer to this crying out in verse 25. And also the first part of chapter 8. He says, I thank God. Deliverance comes through Jesus Christ our Lord. For life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. Now if Paul were alive today, I personally believe he would give us the exact same answer to the battle in the brain that he gave to the church at Rome in AD 58. I can hear him saying, thanks be to God who gives us the victory. There's no way, beloved, at least in my mind, there is no way I can even imagine Paul crying out today saying, thanks be to God for psychotherapy and drug medications which give us the victory over our inherited and cultivated tendencies to evil. I think you get my point. The biblical bottom line is this. Either victory over our sinful nature 
comes through Jesus Christ or it comes through modern science. I choose Jesus. How about you? In short, beloved, it doesn't matter if you're a religious person or not. The battle is the same for every one of us. And no person on earth can win that battle over their inner emotions unless they have been born again. On that, beloved, you have God's Word. Now let me share a few more facts about this interesting little amygdala or our emotional control center, if you please, in our brain. I've discovered that our little amygdala has been implicated or found to be responsible for aggressive states that we find ourselves in, such as anger and fear, intense sexual emotion, and eating and drinking behaviors. In fact, are you aware that some folks only have to look at a can of beer or a glass of wine, and their emotions immediately take charge. Feelings, warm, fuzzy, aggressive, emotional feelings literally well up inside of them to the point that they have no control over their will or their choice not to drink. In fact, recordings of neurons in the amygdala have found individual neurons that respond specifically to the following. Now listen carefully, because folks, what I'm laying here is a foundation to incredible insights in God's Word from a scientific standpoint. Listen to this. I'm going to say it again. Recordings of neurons in the amygdala have found individual neurons that respond specifically to auditory, what we hear, taste, what we hear, Taste, what we smell, somatic senses such as touch and pressure, as well as visual stimuli, with the visual neurons being the most plentiful. Isn't that an interesting thought? This brings me, beloved, to an extremely important question in light of these scientific facts. Was there ever a time when man was capable of controlling his emotions? In other words, was there ever a time when man had a perfect balance between his thoughts and his feelings? If there was such a time, when was it? And what happened that caused all of humanity to spin out of control? I'd like for you to take your Bibles, if you would, and turn with me to the very first book of the Bible, to the book of Genesis. Would you do that, please? Genesis chapter 2. I'd like for us to read about the beginning of humankind. And let's see if the Bible has an answer to our questions concerning the origin of the battle within our brains and what happened. I'd like for you to take a look at Genesis chapter 2. And we'll begin with verse 7. And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. 
Verse 8 says that the Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden, and there he put the man whom he had formed, and out of the ground the Lord made every tree to grow that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the what? Knowledge of good and what? Evil. Slip down to verse 15. Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden and told him to tend and keep it. And the Lord commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Now Adam didn't have a clue what he was talking about as far as dying. Nothing had ever died. He had no emotions to even relate to what he was talking about as far as death. But he did understand the knowledge of good. But he did not know what the word evil meant. Are you with me so far? Let's slip up, if you would, just to verse 25 for time's sake. You'll recall that God put him to sleep and took a rib from his side, according to the biblical account, and made a woman for him. It says in verse 25, And they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were what? Not ashamed. I'm suggesting, beloved, that everything Adam and Eve heard, saw, touched, smelled, and tasted only brought forth positive responses from their amygdala. They knew nothing of shame or emotional pain. They stood in perfect harmony with God and with each other. In other words, the only feelings and emotions they had ever experienced up to this point of verse 25 were love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, and gentleness, and they had perfect self-control over every thought and feeling. But in chapter 3, all of that changes. Notice verse 1, chapter 3. It says, Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said to the servant, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat of it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Whatever that means. Verse 4. Then the serpent said to the woman, and by the way, I think you know that most snakes don't talk. This was a wonder to Eve, and I want you to transport your mind back there with me for a moment. Eve, who had never experienced a bad thought in her life, never had a bad experience in her life or a bad emotion in her life, is now talking to a winged serpent in a tree. And the serpent is speaking to her, having eaten of the fruit of the tree that brings knowledge. 
knowledge of good and whatever evil is. Are you curious to experience what it is? For if you do, you'll not only be as wise as me, a serpent who can talk, but you will be like God, the one who made you, the one who created you. You can be equal to him. Now, can you imagine what's going on in her cerebral cortex of the frontal lobe? Can you imagine what she's thinking at this point? Someone had just told her husband in verse 17, in the day that you eat of this tree, you will surely die. Now she's hearing a serpent say to her, you may eat of this tree and you will not die. There seems to be a conflict in the beginning of her thinking process. I will, I won't. She's never had this before. We have a conflict. We have a battle going on in the brain. But now notice what happens. This is most interesting. The serpent continues to talk in verse 5, and he says, God knows that the day that you eat of this fruit, that your eyes will be open, you'll be like God, and you'll know good and evil. And so when the woman saw, I want you to back up for a moment. I missed a point. That's verse 4. We talked about it, but you need to circle it. It's in verse 4. It says, Then the serpent said to the woman, Talking snake, said to the woman. That means there's an auditory hearing process going on. I just want you to notice this. The amygdala in her mind is being touched with sound. Are you with me? So circle the serpent said. That's hearing. And now slip down to verse 6. And when the woman saw the tree and saw that it was good for food and that it was pleasant to the eyes and the tree desirable to make one wise, she took. What does that mean? She touched. All right? There's another one of the senses. As she takes it, it lets off an aroma. Have you ever been in an orchard? I picked up our little neighbor this morning and brought her down to the little coffee shop where she picks up a bus to go to work. And she slipped into the car and she said, Oh, you having another potluck today at your church? She smelled the casseroles my wife had prepared. But the little gal smelled something even though she didn't see it. In this case, Eve sees, she hears, She touches, and now the aroma of that fresh fruit in her hand, she smells that, which also titillates the amygdala. But she's not done. It says then the last part of verse 6, after she took the fruit, she smells the fruit. She then does what? She ate the fruit. She bites into that fruit. Nothing wrong with the fruit. It was good fruit. Everything that God made was good. But there was a test going on here. Would she be loyal to God or loyal to the serpent? And she eats. To choose the knowledge of evil was granted and the emotional control center of her mind was broken in that instant. It was wounded and traumatized, beloved, and filled with feelings never before experienced by humankind. Let me illustrate it, if I might. Have a little hammer here. 
Here are a couple little amygdala in the brain. My wife's watching very carefully because this is, this is her brain dish. We have the little amygdala in the brain. All of the emotions that she's experienced as she's standing by this tree of knowledge of good and evil are now in a process of doing something radically in her life. Never before experienced by humanity. Evil. What in the world is evil? It's breaking your relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. It's trusting somebody else for your salvation rather than Jesus Christ. He is your creator. He is your savior. He is your Lord. He is your continuation of life. Remember, God breathed into them the breath of life. Man became a living soul. He wasn't given a living soul. He didn't innately have it within himself. He didn't evolve. God made him and gave him life. You and I live today because of the very power of God in our life. We don't sustain our life. God sustains our life. And here is Eve standing before this tree, vacillating between relation with God and relation with the evil one. And the moment she takes a bite of that fruit, it's like she bites on a hand grenade. Something happens in her brain. And the little amygdala are broken. Wounded, if you please. Traumatized. Let me show you what else happened at that moment. I believe that Satan poured within her wounded soul a whole new way of thinking. Just as I poured that red grape juice over the top of those broken eggs inside that glass bowl. Whole new thinking took place. It says in verse 7 that after she gave to her husband, then the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew that they were naked. Verse 25, previous chapter says they already knew they were naked, but they were not what? Ashamed. Isn't it interesting that we come down to this verse, verse 7, and it says that their eyes were opened and they see that they're naked and they immediately sew fig leaves together that they might cover their nakedness and hide themselves. What happened? Something happened in the brain. Shame entered their soul. Never experienced that before. And it moves on. Verse 8, and they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. That was always a welcome sound. They always ran to see Jesus. But this day, something's different because something's happened. Their mind, as it were, has been wounded by an enemy. And it says, Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. For the first time in their life, beloved, they experienced fear. Evil, fear, running from the one who loved them more than anyone else in all of the universe, God himself. Then the Lord called to Adam and said, where are you? Verse 10, and so he said, I heard your voice in the garden and I was what? I was afraid. Fear had gripped him. He had never experienced it in his life. Didn't even know what it it was until he was broken and wounded and spilled out. I heard your voice. I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And he said, who told you that you were naked? 
It's just like Satan to laugh at us, isn't it? After he gets us to fall, then he laughs and mocks us. And Jesus then says to Adam, Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you that you should not eat? And it's sort of like he's being identified. He's being pointed out, as it were, right now. And and God is looking at Adam, not Eve. He's not looking at anyone but the head of the home, the responsible party. And he's saying, have you eaten of that tree? In other words, he's now experiencing the emotion of guilt. You're right. I'm guilty as charged. And he was afraid. And the man said to the woman, verse 12, whom you gave to me. Well, God, she was the one that gave me from the tree. And I ate. Do you understand an emotion that suddenly is evolving here in his mind? He's never experienced this before. We call it today in modern psychology, we call it transference. It's not your problem. It was your parents' problem. Or it was somebody else's problem. So you can be relieved of that pressure. And so now he transfers all of the shame and the guilt and the fear upon his wife, if you please. And so the emotion of anger is found within him, which he had never experienced before. And so the Lord said to the serpent in verse 14, Because you've done this, you are cursed, and don't miss the next implication. You are cursed more than all cattle. That means, beloved, that when Adam and Eve partook of that fruit, all of nature was impacted as a result of it. Every animal was impacted, and they received part of the curse. But the serpent was cursed more than all the cattle. He was cursed more than every beast of the field. In fact, on his belly, he was to go and he was to eat something all the days of his life. Did you miss it? What was he to eat? What was Adam made out of? Where was Satan's great attack from that moment on? To destroy man. What he had done in the man's mind, he had to maintain. He had to keep man away from Jesus Christ. Because in Jesus, all things can be healed. And then Jesus says in verse 15, most glorious promise, first promise ever given in God's word, Genesis 3:15, and I will put enmity, God says, I will put or fix or root hatred, enmity, conflict, if you please, between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. I'd like to suggest that as a result of experiencing the emotions of evil, having them burned into their brains, Adam and Eve were never the same again. The amygdala, or that little emotional control center in their brain, was now embedded with sharp pieces of negative emotions and new hormones which would be passed on to every child from then on. I'd like for you to listen to this little statement taken from a book called Education, page 29. It was written over 100 years ago. It says, A perception of right, a desire for goodness, exists in every heart. But against these principles of goodness, there is struggling an antagonistic power. 
The result of the eating of the tree of knowledge of good and evil is manifest in every man's experience. There is in his nature a bent to evil, a force which unaided he could not resist. Take a look at verse 17. Then to Adam, God said, because you have heeded the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, saying you should not eat, cursed is the ground for your sake. Not only were the cattle cursed, the animals cursed. Adam and Eve also received their curse. But even the very earth itself, the ground itself was cursed. In fact, he says, in toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life, both thorns and thistles it shall bring forth to you. Verse 19, in the sweat of your face... You shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you what? Shall return. Now he's had fear experienced in his life for the first time, anger, jealousy. He's had it all, but this is something new. He now is told that he's going to go back to what he was before he was. And something sweeps across his mind. Anxiety. Have you ever experienced anxiety and a little fear of tomorrow or anxiety about what might take place next week? Are you worried about the future and your finances? Are you worried about your home? Are you worried about the economy? Are you worried about your job? Are you worried about tomorrow? Adam, for the first time in his life, was beginning to worry about tomorrow because his days were numbered, he said. And then, verse 21, For Adam and his wife, the Lord God made tunics, or coats, of skin, and clothed them. It was a covering as a robe. When Adam saw the source of this covering, it not only broke his heart, but it terrorized him, burning into that amygdala, that he would never forget as long as he lived. When Adam and Eve watched that little quivering animal fall helpless to the ground and watched its eyes that were, that were so open and noble and understanding and sympathetic and loving and kind that had done absolutely nothing to deserve this, when he saw the eyes suddenly glazed over and life disappeared... And his little limbs became stiff. Adam realized for the first time in his life what death really meant. But the coat was placed upon him. The death of the lamb or the goat was placed upon him. He not only had a death decree, but he also had an evidence of life that was given to him from someone outside himself. It was a symbol, if you please, of the love of Jesus Christ, the robe of Christ's righteousness being placed upon the first parent, your parent and mine, letting him and her know that there's hope through Jesus Christ. I will die as the Lamb of God, and you may have my robe, my life, in place of yours, that you might live forever and not die eternally. What a God! And so it was. In verse 22 it says, Behold, the man has become like one of us to know good and evil. 
And therefore, lest he put forth his hand and take of the tree of life and eat and live forever, therefore the Lord God sent him, verse 23 says, out of the garden of Eden to till the ground from which he was taken. I'd like to share one final statement in closing today from an old Review and Herald church paper. November 11, 1915. Paragraph 2. This is what we are told. I find it most interesting in light of modern science and what we've talked about today. It says it was possible, was possible for Adam before the fall to form a righteous character by obedience to God's law. But he failed to do this. And because of his sin, our natures are fallen. And we cannot make ourselves righteous. Beloved, we can't fix it ourselves. Since we are sinful, unholy, we cannot perfectly obey the holy law. We have no righteousness of our own with which to meet the claims of the law of God. But Christ has made a way of escape for us. If you give yourself to Him and accept Him as your Savior, then sinful as your life may have been, for His sake you are accounted righteous. Christ's character stands in place of your character, and you're accepted before God just as if you had not sinned or been broken or wounded. In our next study, we're going to take a look at what happens when we give ourselves to God. Scientifically, I'm suggesting, beloved, that God will do for you what no modern science has ever been able to do so far. And that's change your thoughts and feelings, bringing them under the power of His divine reason and control. We'll also see how the enemy of God is working to counter God's work in your life, working on your emotions and your feelings so that He can control your thoughts and keep you from experiencing the new birth which will set you on the only path, the true path, if you please, for emotional and spiritual healing. You're not going to want to miss part two because, beloved, none of us are exempt from the battle in the brain. Let's pray. Father, this morning we thank you for revealing to us scientifically and also from your word biblically. We were born, Father, with a natural bent towards sinning. That's why we need you today. I pray that you will come into our hearts today, into our minds today. Begin a healing process in our minds that we might one day by your grace experience what it means and what it is to have our thoughts in control of our emotions and not our emotions out of control and taking possession of our thoughts. Amen.